as we turn in the pages of our Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 15 and 16, let's join Dave Wordson as he discusses with us the biggest celebration of the year in ancient Israel. Stay with us. You might find some strong reasons to celebrate yourself in these ancient pages. Special days, days of remembrance, even 3,000 years after he gave those days, the children of Israel, the Jewish people today, still celebrate these festivals, these feasts. And they are still a distinctive people. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, we're introduced to the Independence Day of the nation of Israel. We're introduced to the equivalent of the United States July 4th, only in a Hebrew context. Look at it in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 1. Observe the month of Aviv and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God, because in the month of Aviv, he brought you out of Egypt by night. The month of Aviv is in the springtime. It's equivalent to our March or April. Later on, utilizing a Babylonian name, it became known as the month of Nisan, Nisan the 14th. And that was the day, Independence Day, for the nation of Israel. Moses goes on and says, this is what you're to do on that day. You are to sacrifice as the Passover to the Lord your God an animal from your flock or herd at the place that the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. Do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread. The day after you celebrate the Passover lamb, the next day you are to eat nothing but unleavened bread for the next seven days. The bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure the time of your departure from Egypt. Let no yeast be found in your possession in all your land for seven days. Do not let any of the meat you sacrifice in the evening of the first day remain until the morning. You must not sacrifice the Passover in any town the Lord your God gives you, except in the place that he will choose as a dwelling place for his name. There you must sacrifice the Passover in the evening when the sun goes down on the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. Roast it and eat it at the place the Lord your God will choose. Then in the morning return to your tents. For six days eat the unleavened bread. And on the seventh day hold an assembly to the Lord your God and do no work. And there we have Moses' summary of what it meant to celebrate the Passover. He's automatically assuming that the people that he was running to already knew the events of Exodus chapter 12. He assumed that they already knew about the first exodus from the land of Egypt. As we read this passage, there are several key thoughts that Moses underlines in our hearts. Number one, he talks about the sacrifice, the distinctiveness of the sacrifice. On the 10th day of Nisan, on the 10th day of Aviv, the children of Israel were to take a lamb from their flock. And they would bring it into their house and they would very carefully take care of it for four days. They let the family get attached to it. They let the little children begin to treat it as a pet. And then on the 14th day of Nisan at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, as Israel began to develop and Jerusalem became the central sanctuary, an Israelite with his family would go down and by the first century in courses of Jewish families, one course after another, these multitudes of people, 
anywhere from 200,000 and more, would go into the temple. And at the appointed time, they would slay the sacrificial lamb. It was the only sacrifice that the Israelite men themselves would be able to conduct. Then the priest, the Levitical priesthood, would go around, collect the blood from these hundreds of thousands of sacrifices, and they would splash the blood against the altar. And then they would skin the lamb, the family would skin the lamb, they would clean it, and then they would wrap it in the skin that they had just taken off, and they would go home and roast their Passover lamb that night. If you were an Israelite child, this festival, the Passover festival, would be emblazoned on your mind from the time that you were just a small child. Now, why was it important? The sacrifice was important. The second thing that we read about in the book of Deuteronomy that's very important is the unleavened bread. It stresses over and over again in this passage that you're to eat nothing but unleavened bread for the seven days after celebrating the Passover supper that evening. Why? Moses reminds his people, I want you to remember that you were an enslaved people. I want you to remember that for hundreds of years, more than 400 years, you lived under the lash of an Egyptian taskmaster. And I want you to realize that on the night that the Lord gave you great victory over your enemy, that you had to prepare in haste. You didn't have time to let the bread rise. Mary likes to make homemade bread. And she likes to collect different recipes. And one of the things you have to do is to wait. In fact, often she comes to me in great consternation and says, Man, it's just not rising right. Or it's not doing exactly right. And I, have, I don't have the foggiest idea what she's talking about. But every one of you bread makers know exactly what you're talking about. Because you've all had the experience when the bread didn't rise just, just right. And it looks kind of like a pancake instead of a loaf of bread. Well, it takes longer to let all that process of fermentation take place and for the gases to lift that bread up and for it to be a leavened bread. When you're in a hurry, you just slap the ingredients in, you forget the yeast, you cook it and you take that flat slab. It lasts longer. In fact, we know that from nomadic uh, nomadic stories that are told even from way back in the book of Genesis that unleavened bread was the bread of the wandering patriarchs of those that lived in tents and those that moved from place to place. And Moses is saying, I want you to eat unleavened bread. I want you to sacrifice this lamb. It needs to be unblemished. It needs to be a firstling of your flock. Not a bone can be broken, bringing together some of the, the instructions from the book of Exodus and from the book of Leviticus and Numbers. Not a bone of it could be broken. It needed to be roasted whole. And then the entire family had to consume it in its entirety just that night. And then we have the unleavened bread. And these things would be hammered home to the children of Israel. Why? Because the Lord God of Israel wanted them to remember when they brought the lamb back to the table, back to their homes, they had very careful ritual that they would go through. They had four cups of wine that they would drink. They had one cup that would be left just on the table, totally undrunk. That was Elijah's cup. Because Elijah was the man who was taken up into heaven with a chariot of fire. And in, in Jewish thinking, Elijah was going to come and he was going to herald the coming of the Messiah. 
And so these Israelite families would leave Elijah's cup undrunk so that when he came and when he announced the coming of the Messiah, that he would be able to drink then. So it became a celebration. The third cup was a cup of redemption. It was the cup of sacrifice. Very possibly, that's the cup that the Lord picked up at the conclusion of the meal, and that became our last supper, the cup of redemption. There was one final cup, which was the cup of celebration. It was the cup of the final restoration of all things in the Lord. When everyone will bow down and worship the Lord God of heaven and earth. The Lord did not drink that cup because he inaugurated the cup of redemption. But we're still waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now this Israelite custom would be carried forth, and as I've been trying to get you to begin to think about, our Lord Jesus took that ancient Israelite feast and made it for us a feast that kind of brings everything to fruition, which is what I want you to understand. So we have the sacrifice, we have the unleavened bread, and a little boy, like a boy in the household of Israel, would say to his dad, what makes this night, daddy, what makes this night different from all others? And the father in Israel, just like every one of you fathers, would say to his household, I'm going to tell you the story again. And he would begin to tell his family, our people were enslaved in Egypt. And our people didn't know what freedom was. Our people had to get up. In fact, every man um, in our entire nation had to get up every single day, real early in the morning. And they would go out and they would have to gather straw and then mix it together with mud and with, and with water. And they would prepare the constituents of ancient Egyptian brick. And then they would have to build these different houses and mansions of the Pharaoh and different burial places. And the Egyptian taskmasters would whip our backs and we would go home late at night and and we would have our wives nurse the the wounds on our back and then we would fitfully sleep just as much as we could and then it would be right back. Seven days a week, never a break, never a holiday, always under the taskmaster of Egypt. And then the Lord sent a deliverer, and his name was Moses. And Moses had grown up in Egypt, but for 40 years he had fled into the wilderness of Midian. And then one day he came back. And for the first time in history, that as far as we could know, after these 400 years, there was an Egyptian that looked at a pharaoh and said, let God's people go free. Started out with just a simple request. Let them just worship freely. Let them just go out into the wilderness and just have, just have a celebration. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. And so God began to bring his sledgehammer of judgment against the secular system of his day. And the ten plagues of Egypt began to pound away at the pride and the, the independence and the, and the autonomous nature of King Pharaoh. And Moses, you all know from the popular song, began to say again and again, let my people go, let my people go. And you know how Pharaoh's heart went up and down like a roller coaster. He would say yes, then he would say no. He would say yes, and he would say no. Finally, it came time, and the ninth plague was completed. And the Lord God of heaven and earth has said, I have had enough. He said the tenth plague is going to be more horrific and more catastrophic to the nation of Israel than just anything imagined. It's not going to be frogs. It's not going to be cattle that dies. It's not going to be hail. 
this is going to be the loss of a firstborn. And because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, because of the sin and the, the terrible antagonism towards the living God, a kingly man on earth that shook his fist at the Lord God of heaven and earth and said, I'm the king. God said, no, you're not. I'm the king. He said, tonight Moses warned the Egyptians. Tonight the death angel is going to go throughout Egypt. And every home, every home is going to lose their firstborn son. Every firstling of the cattle, every firstling of the herd, they're all going to die. But Moses said there's a word of redemption. There's a word of covering. He said, for all of you who will go to your home this afternoon, if you will get your, a lamb, if you will slay the lamb and then take a hyssop branch and dip the hyssop down in the blood of that lamb and bring all your family into the house, make sure they're all in your enclosure, and then put the blood at the top of the door on the two lentils, and then you are to eat the Passover lamb. And that night, all the Israelites that believed, and many Egyptians, because we know that many Egyptians left with the children of Israel when they were delivered. Many of the people that night believed the word of the Lord. And they slew the lamb. And they anointed the doorposts. It's a story that all of you have heard from the time that you were small. And that night, the death angel went throughout Egypt. And the death wails from, Egypt, from Pharaoh's house down to the lowliest servant's house that wasn't covered by the blood of the lamb. The wail of death, the wail of loss, the firstborn died. But in every single home that had been anointed with the blood of the lamb, in every single home where the father had chosen to remember, in every single home where the family had gathered together and they ate this meal of bitter herbs and, and they ate this meal of unleavened bread and they ate the meal of lamb, and as a family, they united together every single home that obeyed this, this command of the Lord. Their child lived. Their firstborn was strong and healthy. The result of that devastating plague against Egypt, it was the final thing that, that caused the Pharaoh to come to the end of his rope. His advisor says, you need to let these people go. You know how this story goes. The Egyptians were so anxious to get rid of the children of Israel that they showered them with gifts and they said, just get out of here as quick as you can. And the children of Israel began to mobilize together and they began to move out away from Egypt. They were delivered and they moved into the wilderness God delivered them through the Red Sea, and for the first time in this people's history, they were free. And they began to live under the care and the protection of Almighty God. If you were Jews today, if this was a completely Jewish audience, the story that I just told you is, the, is one of the first stories of independence for you. And your history would go on to have many stories, incredible stories of deliverance. It would tell the stories of King David who would deliver Jerusalem and make the one place of central worship. It would go on and tell the stories of King Hezekiah who finally turned the people away from idolatry for a period of time and they celebrated this feast in 2 Chronicles chapter 30. It would tell the story of King Josiah who a hundred years after Hezekiah's time again brought the people back to remember this feast. It would tell the story of Ezra 
and Nehemiah, after the Babylonian captivity and the children of Israel became enslaved again, not in Egypt this time, but in Babylon, it would tell the story of the children of Israel moving back from the, from the city of Babylon, coming back once again into the land of promise. And under Ezra, they would celebrate this feast again. And as Israelites, you would, you would resound deep in your soul. You would say, that's my story. That's the, that's the meaning of our people. That's what ultimately in the modern world generated the Zionist movement. It's that tremendous fire that was deep in the souls of Jews. We need to be able to go back home. We need to be able to go back and, and worship our God in the land that he has given to us. It would explain Israeli paratroopers hitting the wailing wall and these, these hardened, battle-weary soldiers weeping and beginning to cry because they'd finally come back to the holy place, the sacred wall, the foundation of the temple. If you were Jews, that would all resound in your soul. And that's what Moses would want because that's what makes a people. You see, what makes a people, what makes people unite together, what makes people one is remembering, remembering what founded us, remembering what caused the means, the, the reason for celebration. One of the great tragedies in our own culture, even as a nation, is we are moving away from understanding how important it is to remember. But it's very interesting that as soon as you begin to lament that nobody remembers and nobody knows anything about history, suddenly you'll have somebody that just comes back like a flood and people remember. Why? Because they say that you need to remember. And a film director, Ken Burns, says you need to remember. Foote, a southern historian, says you need to remember. And so Turner Industries gets everything mobilized and they recreate Gettysburg. You know why? Because we're united as a nation because of what happened on the fields of Gettysburg. And 35,000 men that bled and died on that field explain why I, myself, as, an, as a Yankee, can drive in my car and come to Dallas Theological Seminary more than 20 years ago. And then I can come to a small town in rural Texas and I'm free to have you invite me to begin to teach you the word of God. And we are just one people. We're just one people. Now I understand that there's a lot of forces that, that are still at work, but it was at Gettysburg that some of those values were spoken. And men and women gave their lives because they believed in something called unity, in something they'd be called freedom. And other people died because they believed in other values. And it's very important for our nation to remember because that's what makes us a people. But you know, if I were speaking to, a, to an English audience today, if I were speaking to a French audience today, if I were speaking to a Russian audience today, that little bit of historical remembrance wouldn't mean anything to them. Because they're not part of the people. They're not part of the United States of America. For you as Americans, when I talk to you about individual freedom, the right to be able to choose your jobs, the right to be able to travel, the right to be able to vote, the right of free speech, which means that Okies can go through even Fair Park in Texas and they can use blasphemous language against the University of Texas. Just kidding a little bit. 
but they can freely do it. Because we have what we call free speech. As Americans, that all means a great deal to us. If you are not a United States citizen, that wouldn't move in your heart. But because you are, it means something. You say, Dave, what are you getting at? The Jewish Passover was exactly that. It was Jewish. You say, well, Dave, why are we setting it today? We're not Jewish. We're not Israelite. Why are we celebrating? Because Jesus in the first century took the Passover and he forever made it something that we need to remember. I've been talking about the importance of memorials. I've been talking about the the importance of every single dad taking time with his family when they go back and they review. They review the things that are important. They review the things that make them a family. They review the things that make them a nation. And we've talked about the fact that Moses, the founder of Israel, understood that that's the way you unite people. That's the way you get them to act as one. That's the way that you get them to be together. You say, well, okay, Dave, we're not Israelites. What does the Passover mean to us? Well, the Lord Jesus told his disciples that they needed to go and they needed to find an upper room because he wanted to prepare to eat the Passover. Jesus, as a Jew, partook of this festival. Three and a half years before he told his disciples to go and find the upper room where they would eat the Passover together or eat one of the meals that was related to this Passover time, Three and a half years before that, a rugged, strange, I mean a guy that looked like he was out of, out of some desert somewhere, hollered out when he saw Jesus of Nazareth these words in John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus, for three and a half years, presented himself to these Jewish people as the anointed one, as the Messiah, as the one who said, I am the one who was to come. More and more, the Jewish leaders, just like Pharaoh of all, hardened themselves against the work of God, against the invitation of God, against the call to turn around, to repent. The very night that Jesus celebrated his final Passover, the very night was the night that he was going to be betrayed. And Jesus gathered together with that band of disciples, and they went through the Jewish ritual that we've been talking about today. And Jesus looked back to the great deliverance from Egypt. And he looked back to the great freedom that God gave his people. But Jesus, for three and a half years, in fact, for a lifetime, had been talking about a far deeper slavery. It's not the slavery of a taskmaster. It's not the slavery of an Egyptian that's going to whip you. It's not the slavery that's going to make you get up in the morning and work a certain job. It's not that kind of slavery. It's a slavery that's deep inside. It's a slavery that means that you know what you ought to do. You know what is right. You know basically what's moral. You have debates at times with your friends about what's right and wrong. But deep in every one of our souls, we have a pretty good handle on what is wrong. 
We know that it's a good thing for a husband to live with one woman, his wife, and be devoted for her. It's intrinsic in our hearts that that is a good thing. And we know that when that is invaded and, and, and adultery comes into a home, we know that somehow that's wrong. Even if we've never been taught it, deep in our soul, we know that that's just not good. It's not what produces happiness. It's not what ultimately brings about the best. We all know that it's wrong for someone to bust into our house and steal all of our stuff. We all know that it's wrong to lie. We all know that if we have a friend, that something's very precious when we can trust that friend. When the friend doesn't lie to us, when they won't say one thing in high school to one of our friends and another thing in an, in, to another friend and, and send rumors all over the school about us. Every one of us know from the high school students to the adults, they all know that someone that twists the truth, something's not right about that. It hurts. It produces pain. What I'm trying to cause all of you to realize is that every single one of us know deep in our soul what really is right. We know what's moral. We know what should conform to the standard of the way that things should be. What's our problem? We don't do it. We don't obey it. I don't do it, and you don't do it. We're enslaved. We lose it, and we disobey. And that means that we're a slave. Every one of you could give personal testimony to having a good intention, really believing that something was right, and then you didn't do it. And you're a slave. You're totally enslaved. And Jesus knew that that was the worst slavery that human beings lived under, the slavery to our own internal passion to do wrong, to do evil. And Jesus knew that the movement of that passion was ultimately going to lead to death. It led to physical death, but it also led because of its its hardness and its obstinacy and its rebellion and its shaking its fist against God. It would ultimately lead to separation from the God who set all the standards, from the God whose standard was right in his own soul and character. And Jesus knew that the greatest enemy that we are all facing was not some Egyptian taskmaster, It was the rebellion that was deep within our own hearts. And that's what the New Testament says and talks about you are slaves in trespasses and sin. And Jesus at the Last Supper took the bread. He said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, take and drink. This is the blood of the new covenant. And when he said, take and drink, this is the blood of the new covenant, he was saying there was an old covenant, and the old covenant had its remembrances, it had its memorials, it talked about a great deliverance from Egypt. And it was celebrated in the Passover. He's saying, I want you to have a new memorial. I'm going to breathe into the old traditions of the Passover that talked about an earthly deliverance from the land of Egypt. And I'm going to speak to you about a new beginning, a new covenant that's going to set you free from your slavery to sin and to death. And a few hours later, the next day, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, at the very time as the lambs would be being sacrificed in the temple, For that night would be the traditional, the normal, the Judean Passover. 
As, as those lambs were being slain, according to John's gospel, Jesus, the Passover lamb, the reason why God all the way through the Old Testament says the firstborn belongs to me. And every one of your firstborn need to be redeemed because the firstborn belongs to me. And all those stories about God telling Abraham to slay his firstborn son Isaac. And all those careful customs about not breaking a bone, of not cutting the lamb up at all, of having it completely whole. All of those intricate little details that Israelites had kept for hundreds of years suddenly became focused and understandable because the ultimate writer of all of history was saying it all spoke about this moment in time that's going to celebrate freedom and independence, a real freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from death. Freedom from rebellion against God. And not a bone of him was broken. He was completely whole. But he hollered out on the cross, it is finished. And he willingly gave up his life so that we could be free. And Jesus in the New Testament becomes the culmination the one that he put it this way, in me the law is fulfilled. In me the law comes to its culmination. In me, you could say, all the details of the story suddenly are thrown into, into blazing meaning and light and deliverance. You see, for most of you, the historical moment when God delivered the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, it means very little to you. It's kind of like the story of Masada. You kind of watch it from the outside. It's kind of like a Yankee trying to understand the Alamo. They just can't quite get it. Like those of you that have been born and raised here. But you know, all of those stories, whether it be the Alamo for a Texan or whether it be Independence Day for us as Americans, see, all those days kind of diversify throughout the culture. The Passover does as well for Jewish people. But you know, Jesus introduced a memorial. He introduced a deliverance that all the world needs to remember, that all the world needs to hallow. That all the world needs to be able to have in every single family across the world, every single family needs to be able to have a little boy tug on his daddy and have that little boy say, Dad, what are we going to do? Why are they passing that bread around? Why are they passing that cup around? What makes this day different than all other days? And every little boy deserves to be able to have a daddy say. You see, son, when I was born, I was born knowing deep in my soul what was right. I was born deep in my soul knowing basically what God's standards were. But you know, as I grew up just like you, I lied. Mom and dad never taught me to lie, but I just lied at times. When I thought it was a little bit easier to lie than to tell the truth, I lied. Sometimes I stole a little bit, 
boy, sometimes, sometimes I could be incredibly angry, so angry I wanted to tear someone apart. And son, nobody taught me how to do any of those things. It was just deep in my soul. And I began to realize that, that those kinds of things, what we're going to call evil, sin, meant that one day I was going to die, I was going to be separated from God. And then a friend came. And this friend told me about one that loved me so much that on the cross of Calvary, this friend took the punishment that I needed to get, the punishment that would pay the just penalty for what my sin deserved, and my friend died for me. In my own family, this daddy tells my little boys and my little girl that, kids, that happened to me. I understood the meaning of that when I was just a bitty kid of five years of age because I had the great privilege of being raised in a family where my daddy could tell me the story and my mom could sing me the story from the time that I was just a little infant in my mom's arms. But when I was five, it's when I understood in my own heart that he did it for me. And in a moment of time, when I said, Jesus is my Passover lamb, Jesus is the one that took the penalty that I deserve, and Jesus set me free, in a moment of time when I opened my heart to him, there was an exodus. There was a departure. I moved out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. I moved out of a kingdom of death into a kingdom of life. I moved out of being a child of darkness to becoming a child of light. And I was able to tell my kids from the time that they were just little kids about that story. How about you? I want all of you to think. Every daddy, can you tell your kids? Do you have a memorial? I started out today with the power of remembrance. You know, there's great power in that. If I got going a little bit too much about Jonathan's birth and Joel's birth and Joshua's birth and Janae's birth, I can remember every one of those. Mary really remembers. But I couldn't help but sit there remembering yesterday. Who would have ever dreamed as Jonathan was in the womb of his mom that years later I would be at a game with my own son and now he'd be grown. And all those tremendous, meaningful things called family and life and kids and children. You see, remembrances are important. The tears come to all of your minds because you hear my remembrances and it makes you remember your remembrances. I want that to happen not just about the birth of your children, but I want every one of you dads to have a remembrance when the Lamb of God became your lamb. Do you remember? You say, Dave, no, to be honest with you, I really don't remember. I'm not really sure. Maybe as I've been speaking and I've been outlining the meaning of the Passover and we've seen it, its meaning in old Israel and we see its meaning for the new people of God, us as believers. Maybe this is the time the Holy Spirit, that quiet voice of God deep within your soul has been saying, you need to decide. You just need to trust. You just need to believe.
you daddies are the ones that have the most important role to play in remembrance. Most of you dads, I do know, have that moment of remembrance. Have you shared that with your kids? Around your dinner table when you're finally able to get the kids together? Do you ever have those times around the table where dad really shares what's important to this family? Do your kids know when you were born again? Do your kids know when you received Jesus? Do they know why you received Jesus? Daddy, I want you to know something. I might speak for 50 minutes to an hour every single Sunday, and your kids might not hear a thing. You, Dad, can speak for two minutes, and your sons will never, never forget. And your daughters will never, never forget. So all of you dads that have invited Christ into your heart, I want you to make a covenant that you're going you're gonna to spend some time with your family and you're going to remember. You're going to have a time of memorial, a time of remembrance, a time when you share. Maybe you could just go around the table or sit together in the living room and just go around there in the circle of the living room and just share how you came to know Christ. Invite your wife to share how she came to know Christ. Those are moments to remember. You say, Dave, I'd like to do that. To be honest with you, I really like to do that, but I don't have that moment. Why don't you make this your moment? You say, Dave, what do I need to do? Well, the Lord Jesus that said it is finished on Mount Calvary rose again the third day, and he said, if I go to heaven, I will send another comforter, and that comforter has come, that counselor has come, and the counselor is right here among us. It's the third person of the Trinity called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's right there knocking gently at your heart's door saying, trust me. What Dave told you about the Son of God is true. Because of the unity of the Trinity, you can just imagine Jesus talking to you because he is. And God the Father is as well. All they're waiting for you to do is to say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I realize that I have disobeyed you. I want to nail it down. Just like an Old Testament Israelite trusted in a lamb to protect them from the death angel, I'm going to trust in the lamb of God to protect me and to deliver me from sin and death.